Geordi. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. A life-changing solitary walk to the South Pole led to Erling Kaga writing best-selling book Silence in the Age of Noise. And the Norwegian explorer has a new book out about how walking can change and indeed save your life. He was the first person in history to reach the three poles. He's explored New York sewers, sleeping in tunnels and meeting the wonderful characters who live there. He's been attacked by a polar bear and won, and confounded even the Scientologists who thought he was crazy. With philosophies about life, happiness and how walking is almost a time machine. To really get you thinking, it's Erling Kaga. I was born and raised in uh, Oslo, Norway. My mother was an editor for book publisher. My father was a jazz critic. And we never had a car and we didn't have a TV. So we did outdoors in the evenings and in the weekends. My father believed cars and TV were diseases in society, which at the, at the time thought it was brutal, but he was partly right. I think we're all born explorers in the sense that kids want to climb before they can walk and they're wondering what's hidden behind the exit door and uh, further what's beyond the horizon. And uh, somehow I have kept that spirit. You are now an explorer. You're the first person in history to reach the three poles, as they call them. And I didn't know they were called that, but the North Pole, the South Pole and the summit of Everest. Those are pretty amazing feats. How did you become that little, from that little boy who walked everywhere and didn't have a TV? How did you become a world-renowned explorer? I think we're all born with that, you know, dream about exploring the world. Physically, of course, when I look at my kids today, they explore the world with their devices. But I think, you know, the reason we have, you know, we're born with most of us with the proper feet and legs and hands and fingers and thumbs and eyes and ears was because we're supposed to go out and explore the world. I kept on doing it and somehow that spirit was never diminished thanks to school and parents and friends. We talk about this quite a lot on the Big Travel Podcast about that human, the thing that's within us that makes us want to explore, that wants to see what's over the next horizon, to see what's over the next mountain. I guess at some point it would have been a matter of survival. Yeah, it's, it's both a matter of survival, I think, to explore because I think, you know, you have one, this one huge opportunity to have a rich life. And it's so easy to waste it. It's also, you know, a question about survival when you're on the trek, because of course sometimes it is dangerous, but in general it's not as dangerous to go on these expeditions as it seems. So tell me about some of your expeditions. What came first, the North Pole or the South Pole or Everest? You know, I did many expeditions, small expeditions before these major expeditions to the 80s. But I think to me, the most important expedition in my life has been to walk alone to the South Pole in total solitude for 50 days and nights under the midnight sun. I didn't have any radio to speak to use, so I was totally isolated. That expedition learned me a great lesson on silence and the importance of silence and how silence can be a good friend. As I experienced as a kid, silence can also be brutal. It's about being let out, it's about being lonely, it's about being sad, but it can also be a fantastic experience. And I also think all humans, we need the silence, not only silence surrounding us, but more silence within. And we can't wait for silence to come to us, so we need to invent our own silence. My expedition to North Pole, the South Pole was 
a life changer. What was it like? Well, I've got two questions actually. What it was like physically, and also what it was like mentally, because obviously the physical is going to be very hard, but the mental is going to be just as hard, if not harder. Spending over fifty days and nights on your own in silence, as you're saying, but also while simultaneously exerting yourself very physically. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting. When you walk to the poles, it's technical wise, it's kind of that simple. You put one leg in front of the other and eventually you get there. It's important to also keep in mind that, you know, even a mouse can eat an elephant if it takes small portions. So polar expeditions is very much about, you know, taking one step at a time. So physical-wise, it's tough, but it, you know, it's, it's, I was born, almost born skiing and walking. I love walking. So I think, you know, biggest, you know, challenge is the mental one, as you said. It's a matter about getting up in the morning at the right time, really early. That's a big challenge on any polar expedition, and it's the same as it was 120 years ago. And then to keep your spirit up, I think that that's something you have to work on for every minute throughout the whole day, is to try to think positively and try to look around and try to be a part of the nature, to live into the nature. And that's what happens as the days and weeks pass by. Your body feels like it doesn't stop by your fingertips, but it's extended into the nature. So you become a part of the ice and the snow. So your body kind of extends all the way out to the horizon. And then you can start to have a dialogue with the environment. So you send some thoughts out and you get all the ideas back again. All this again, you know, makes life so rich. And obviously don't need to go to the South Pole to experience this. But I was reminded, as also to write about in my books on silence and walking, that one of the reasons we see so much sadness, loneliness and depressions in society today, I think, is because we are lost touch with nature. We relate to man-made, you know, man-made uh, environments. We relate to our phones and our different devices. And I think that's a big mistake. Yes, and it, it's causing, obviously, a lot of people many problems. So when you are there in the middle of nowhere in the South Pole, what is it that you can see? Is it just a whole vast stretch of ice and snow? Yes. <laughs> how do you how do you keep uh, going, but what's, you know, what's, what's interesting is that when you start i don't think this is all my experience i think this is quite general you think that everything is white and flat all the way out to the horizon but as time passes by and you know we have walked a few miles maybe 100 miles or several hundred miles then you start to see it's not totally white after all you see small nuances in the snow and the ice, a bit bluish, yellowish, reddish, greenish appearing. And it's not flat either. You have small formations on the surface. A lesson you learn on expeditions is to appreciate the details, the small portions, kind of, you know, be happy with small helpings. For me, Oslo is very much about eating big bites. Unfortunately, a lot of things are about being fast, being quick, while life on expedition is about the opposite. What's the sky like? You said it's the land, so you went in the summer months. It's interesting because it's in Antarctica, South Pole, you walk in the summer, and then it's blue skies 24 hours a day. Sometimes it's overcast, etc. but even if it's low pressure in Antarctica, it's usually blue skies. So we have midnight sun, but when you walk to the North Pole, you need to do it in the wintertime and springtime, because Antarctica obviously is a continent circumnavigated by oceans, while the Arctic is an ocean circumnavigated by continents. 
So oh, hang to... on, I need to visualize that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I need a globe in front well, of me. Exactly. So the Antarctic is a continent surrounded by oceans. And the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by continents? Correct. Hey, yeah, I've got it because it's frozen, a frozen exactly. ocean. And the Antarctic is that land that's frozen? That's mostly land with lots of ice on the top. Right, mm. okay. And the Arctic is just ice? Yeah. Well, this and, is an education. I don't think I knew that. And you can have some more education whenever yeah, <laughs> we're on it. Do it. And the reason it's called Arctic is an old word. It means bear like a polar bear. And Antarctic is an anti-Antarctic, so there's no bears. And this is a name that we put on these two ends of the earth for more than 2,000 years ago. Because there are bears in the Arctic? They have polar bears. They have polar bears. And uh, if you see a polar bear walking to the South Pole, you are turned crazy. <laughs> <laughs> are there any, is there any wildlife or any animals at all on the South Pole? It, on the South Pole, no. But in uh, in Antarctica, you know, the, the whole continent, it's uh, on the coastline, quite a lot. Obviously, unbelievable many penguins. But also, you know, great bird life and seals and walruses, etc. So what goes through your head? We'll go to the other poles in a minute, including the Everest pole, which I've never heard it called. I like that, though. But what is going through your head? How mentally are you surviving? I mean, do you start to go mad? Do you start to hallucinate like you would if you're in the desert, for example? No. And, you know, Antarctica is actually the world's greatest desert in the sense that it's a desert based upon water. But it's, it's drier because of the cold. It's drier than uh, Sahara. And it has more hours of sun than Southern California. But it's still the windiest and the coldest place on Earth. But, you know, it, when I think about it from London or wherever, we think it would turn mad under such circumstances. Because you think about life in, norm, uh, in London as the normal. But, you know, compared to all other places, life in London is quite, you know, it's not normal at all. <laughs> and we as humans, we adapt easily to circumstances. And as I said, we're all born with this spirit for exploration. So I think most people, if you happen to be in the situation in Antarctica that you had a walk a long distance, we'll be quite happy about it. Talking of walking, you're here in London at the moment because you're promoting this beautiful book and it feels fabulous. I've been reading it um, over the weekend. It's a lovely book. It's a really nice book. It's called Walking One Step at a Time. How did the book come about? It came about because I have always been walking. I think the humans were born to walk. And then I wrote a few years ago a book called Silence in the Age of Noise, where I asked three questions. What is silence? Where is it? And why is it so important? And I came up with 33 answers. And to my great surprise, the book was translated to 37 languages and then I felt that you know the silence book was a bit abstract on silence and then I want to write a, kind of the same book again but be much more concrete and to me walking is obviously it's a mean to getting from A to B it's something that if you walk that you your heart beats better your lungs works better you're less sick better mood become more creative and you live longer. But I want to write a book not about that, because that you can read about in the paper every day. But I want to write a uh, book on everything else with walking. And also walking with inner silence, because I think walking is very much about inner silence, about getting to know yourself. It's about seeing things up close. It's about moving slowly. It's the greatest means of exploration. So that's why I sat down to write about walking. I totally agree with you and with many things that I've seen you say in the book. I love to walk, whether that's urban walking. I can't remember. I can drive a car. I can't remember the last time I drove a car, maybe 15 years ago. 
I just don't think you need it. But when I go traveling, some people think I'm mad. I mean, I'm not talking about going on big treks or across deserts or hiking or, or mountain climbing. I'm talking about just really lovely, long urban walks, doing miles and miles and miles every day. I feel it really helps you absorb what you're seeing. It feels that you're really part of the world outside. Whereas if you're driving, you're just seeing that world outside. It's a completely different experience. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a uh, big disadvantage with driving. Obviously, the advantage with driving is that you get from A to B faster than if you walk. But the disadvantage is that time passes so much faster when you're inside a car. And also the feeling of space or room around you is also narrowed in. It's getting smaller. So in that sense, you know, people think that time is linear and it quite, quite often it feels linear. But obviously, time is not linear. So to walk is kind of a time machine because if you move slowly, you get more space around yourself, much, much bigger room around yourself. Also, you start to feel that the time lasts longer. So although according to math mathematics, of course, if you drive a distance and use half an hour, and if you have to walk it, you spend two hours. Of course, mathematically, you have saved time. The thing is, it's not true. As everybody knows who walks, time lasts longer and you experience so much more. You see the world, uh, you start to understand things. And I have to say too that, you know, when people eventually get to the goal, they quite often look down on the telephone, on a device and watch TV. I think here in England, people spend three hours every day watching TV and they're playing games on their phones, etc. And if you live for 30,000 days, which most Brits do, you end up spending 90,000 hours watching <laughs> TV. And you know, it's nothing wrong with it, but you're kind of wasting this huge opportunity to live a rich life. With going out and walking and many things like that, but I've been speaking to people recently about if the time that we spent on, you know, lots of people say, I don't have time to read anymore. And I'm sometimes one of those people. I used to love reading and read so much. But actually, if we didn't have our phones, didn't have our devices, didn't have our social media, we could be reading all the time. And the same without walking. But, but problem, exactly, because I think problem with uh, living through media, living through your phone, is it's all about running away from yourself. It's all about forgetting yourself. It's all about living through other people. As I said, it's nothing wrong with it. But if you do it too often, you're forgetting yourself. And one of the meanings of life, of course, is to get to know yourself. But the challenge is when you have to choose between two options, we usually choose the easiest one. And the easiest one is to forget ourselves. I think that's a bit sad because to me, when I spend time by myself, when I spend time in silence, if I do a long walk, I kind of get more curious about other people. I get more respect for the people, both the ones I know, but also the ones I don't know. Especially when I walk, because then I see people in the streets, I uh, get to know the world better. And I think that's also good for you and it's good for any democracy that to see each other. It's good for your intellect. So uh, it's a pity that walking today has almost become a luxury. Tell me about some of your other expeditions. So what about the North Pole? What was that like? That wasn't a solo trip, was it? To the North Pole, I walked with a friend called uh, Berger Oslan, who's today a very well-known polar explorer. But in, a, in 1990, we were both very unknown. We spent 58 days trekking to the North Pole. Temperatures went down to minus 54 centigrade. And wow. we were attacked by a polar bear. And since we're walking on... <laughs> on the ocean covered by ice, the ice is moving all the time. So I have to say, to me, the North Pole was by far the toughest. But- Hang know, on a minute, tell me about being attacked by a polar bear. We're really close to the pole. 
and suddenly I heard my partner shouted, Hi! And I never heard him shout that before, so I looked up and saw a polar bear at around 30 meters distance. Um, we both dived into our sledges, grabbed our handguns, and uh, soon after the bear charged. With handguns, you have to wait until it's really close before you can shoot it, because, I mean, it's sad to kill a polar bear, but when it's a matter about who's having who for dinner, uh, it, to me, the choice was easy. But still, you don't want to hit it with a bullet and not kill it, because then the pain is even worse. So you had to wait until it was really close and to hit it in the chest. So that was that was a dramatic experience. And, uh, Were you scared? I was scared. I didn't feel scared at the time, but as soon as the bear was dead, then I really felt how you know scared I had been. But fortunately, I managed to stay cool while it happened, because <laughs> if not, I wouldn't be here. It must have been a terribly sad feeling. I mean, obviously relieved that you survived and didn't get mauled by a bear. But like you said, you know, it's horrible to have to kill a living, yeah, beautiful yeah. creature like I that. I don't like to kill animals at all, so it's, um, it was definitely not a highlight, but it was sad. But on the other hand, it's also interesting because it's kind of really face a big threat and it's kind of eyes to eyes and teeth to teeth. So that sense, maybe it sounds a bit unsympathetic, but it's also a kind of interesting experience that, you know, it's so seldom in life that you actually kind of one to one with someone who really would like to eat you. <laughs> so uh, in that way, it was also kind of, you know, satisfying. But uh, first of all, it was sad but also you know as in life in general it also you know had something interesting in it what physically happens when you get to both poles is the you know i'm visualizing a flag and men standing around in the the archetypal picture <laughs> is that it does is that what it happens is yeah. it an anti-climax is there still a flag yeah yeah at, you know the north pole is drifting so if you put a flag at the north pole it would be somewhere else next day uh -huh. the south pole the americans have built a base so that's very much about flags, etc. Oh, yeah, the Americans but it's, like uh, a flag. It's, it's, but, you know, it's, it, I think, you know, many explorers say that had this emptiness after an expedition and it's nothing more to reach for. And life feels empty, blah, blah, blah. I had that a few times, but in general, I don't have it because life is so fantastic. and It's so many things to do, not only in expeditions, but in general life. So I think, you know, it's as soon as I get to a place, I like to do something else. What's the base like at the South Pole, the American base? Is it manned? This man, researchers living there, especially in the summertime. Also a few, you know, hardcore people living there throughout the whole winter. And of course, then it's also maintenance people, you know, look after the base. And in my silence book, I, I wrote this anecdote. I think it was about 98 people at the pole for one Christmas many years ago. Most of these people, they hadn't, you know, been in civilization for months. At even someone hadn't been there for more than a year. And they hadn't seen any rocks, no nature, but ice and snow. So one person brought one rock to each <laughs> person as a Christmas present wrapped it into paper and on Christmas Day everybody got one rock each <laughs> you know they unwrapped and sat there with this grey rock and just holding it and you had this total silence so that's an anecdote I like oh yeah, yeah I really like that it just goes to show that the things you take for granted exactly every day when they're taken away take for granted also this closeness to nature how important it is but also you know the generosity with you know just bringing this, the rocks 
Yeah, I mean, you've got to carry 98 rocks exactly. to this as well. It's quite, a, it's quite a thing. Talking of rocks, you climbed Everest. I mean, that's a dirty, great big rock. How was that experience? I, at the time, I'd been to the North Pole, South Pole, and I want to be the first in history to get to all these three places. So I was in a rush. And of course, you think about nature should not be about, you know, competition. But obviously, sometimes it is. On this case, certainly it was. But, you know, it's, it, I found it to be tough. Today, I hear people say to climb Everest is not so tough because so many people have been up there. But the mountain is still 8,848 meters high. And it's still as windy as it used to be and cold, etc. So I found Everest to be a, you know, a tough goal. Absolutely. People still die on Everest. They definitely die. And, you know, when you die high up in the mountain... You're preserved because of the climate. You look quite well after a few decades. <laughs> yes, I suppose that's one way to look at it. Um, I, I've interviewed people that have climbed Everest before. And Molly Hughes, for example, was the, one of the youngest, uh, I think the youngest British woman to climb Everest and the youngest female to, to climb it from both sides. But she said she came across bodies. You know, she came mm-hmm. across a body one day. It's lying there on the path. Yeah. That must be, you know, you feel like when you're doing something that is quite hard work, you know, that must be... A certain, not deterrent, but it must make you stop and think. It probably should. <laughs> but at that stage, this I, I don't think most people are just too tired. And you know you're going to see some, you know, you'll probably see some dead people. But at that stage, you know, your mind is pretty much one-dimensional. You're at a very primitive level. And all you want is to get to the summit. And as soon as in the summit, at least one of the first thoughts I had was, how in hell should I get down again? That's what you're focus, focusing on. I mean, the dead people up there, it's, I think more about it today before and after than I actually did 8,000 meters up. Was there any exhilaration when you reached the top? What was the most exhilarating moment of the mountain? And don't tell me, actually, probably getting back down. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm imagining. Uh, yeah, I thought it was fantastic to get to the summit. I was moved. I, I was. I didn't cry, but almost crying in my all my egocentric, you know, egocentric attitude. The whole expedition came up, which was, I think, was the first time. So it was a great feeling. But as I said, soon after, I asked myself, how could I get down in safety? But you know, for for a few minutes, it was uh, unbelievable feeling, and also see the view. It was most blue skies today. The horizon was, you know, the view was unbelievable but still when people say they climb Everest because of the view I don't trust them fully <laughs> I know people have climbed it and they just see clouds <laughs> yeah, seeing clouds but also the view is very nice from the you know the next mountain you don't need to climb Everest to have a beautiful view yeah that's very mm. true tell me the best and I love the polar bear anecdote tell me the best story that happened the most memorable story from your trip to Everest to the top of Everest that was to get to the summit it's a bit banal but that was to get to the summit and obviously to get down and have succeeded with this dream about reaching those three poles and the reason Everest is called the third pole I think is because the Brits are so eager to get to the North Pole and South Pole first as we know they failed and there was no more poles to reach first and then they named Everest the third pole so they could get to the you know the third pole first that sounds like a very British thing to do we failed with the North and the South we're going to call that a pole in fact (laughs) we're going to call that a pole over there as well and we got it but it sounds cool though third pole sounds sounds cool it worked for you didn't it as well it worked for me Uh, so what other other journeys and expeditions have you been on I sailed a lot uh, sailed boats across the Atlantic and actually down to Antarctica in the late 80s but also you know two 
exotic expeditions, uh, not expeditions, kind of mini, mini expeditions or you know, long walks, was that together with Steve Duncan, an American urban explorer and historian, and some friends came and went. We went to Northern Bronx in New York and went to the sewage and crisscrossed the city through the sewage, train, subway and water tunnels all the way out to the Atlantic. Oh. Uh, sleeping on the ground. We had to get above ground to change tunnels frequently, but still sleeping on the ground, exploring the city from the inside out and see what New York would look like if you turn it upside down. So that was unbelievable experience, I what, think. What did it look like? I've been in the London Victorian sewers and they're amazing. They're probably amazing, but you know, it's it's uh, it's built around the same time. Uh, the Brits were very late. London was very late with the sewer system. Oh, we missed the North Pole, we missed the <laughs> South Pole, and we were late sorting out our crap. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, some people say you haven't really succeeded yet. <laughs> just, yeah, that's true, actually. That was as cheap, though. No, but it's, it's uh, true. But it's, uh, it, in the sewage, you have this strange beauty because everything you think about as being beautiful, at least as a Norwegian, it's, you know, like great colors like blue, red, green, yellow. In the sewer, not the sewage. You know, the difference is the sewer is the tunnel and the sewage is the actual. Okay, okay. The so crap. in the sewer, in the sewer, with lots of sewage. In order to think about fresh air and mountains, but in the sewer, you have nothing of it. You have hardly any colors at all. But then you see these variations of brown and gray. And whenever you get the kind of a little sniff or some fresh air, you really love it. So in that sense, you have kind of a negative beauty. It's beautiful for everything which is not there. And also, it uh, was interesting in New York that we met some people, you know, people living there. This man-made wilderness among explorers has always been a big deal to try to find white spots on the map. But I think, you know, the sewage and, you know, systems of the world are kind of, you know, one of the few remaining wild spots, at least on the surface of the Earth. So it has no, been no Google Earth around those areas. So, you know, it was in that sense, too, it was an interesting expedition. Tell me about the people that you found living underground. You know, I would say an average kind of antisocial. But we met this girl called Brooklyn, who had lived in a tunnel since 1982. When I was there, she had lived there for 28 years. But she lived in a train tunnel. Not, no one lives in a sewer. What's interesting is that, you know, she's comparing her life to her peers and uh, compared to other people in the same situation living above ground. She has a less brutal life in the tunnel. Uh, it's a safer life. It's a more foreseeable life. So she thinks about her life as, you know, a fairly happy life. She's in a very good mood, obviously, compared to other lives. Her life is, you know, really rough. But I asked her, you know, you look more happy. I've met her a couple of times. Uh, you look more happy than most people meet above ground. And she said, yes, and said, why could that be? And she said, I'm happy with what I got. Somehow, you know, she has understood kind of, you know, the secret behind every happy person, that you have to be happy with what you got. And of course, the whole happiness industry, all, you know, the pharmacies, all these pills, everything you use is based upon the fact that we humans, we have a really hard time getting satisfied. But somehow Brooklyn, she's not satisfied all the time, but she said she's satisfied when she has been returned to her little cave in a tunnel, when she has been eating, when she's singing, and when she's playing with her cats. That sounds like she's got most bases covered. Exactly. Um, what have I missed before we run out of time? What, what you are know, your favorite? another 
interesting walk I did was to, as I write about in my book, was to walk through LA. Not very dramatic. Well, it is quite dramatic because not a lot of people walk in LA. And I went, I went on a lot on a long walk in LA. And somebody pulled up at the next shop where I stopped for a drink, and they said, "We saw you walking. Are you okay?" Exactly. I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm just going. I'm just going for a walk." Yeah. You know, it was quite shocking to people. Because in LA, most you know people who walk long distances would be or walk at all would be junkies and prostitutes and crazy people. Well, I am uh, neither of those. Exactly. Well, so that's, not today, anyway. that's probably why I stopped you <laughs> from wondering. But it's uh, it's uh, now it's, it's interesting because the LA we saw was exactly the same LA everybody else. But everybody else see it through a car window. So by walking on the curb of the street, you saw the whole city from a different angle. Because there isn't pavements it's in not, a lot of places. Exactly. So it was deeply fascinating to see how the whole world, the whole city works, and also to see so many different people. And you know, we went into the Church of Scientology on Sunset Boulevard, got you know a personal audit of 90 minutes each. Mm. And we were both considered to be absolutely crazy, <laughs> and, but they could help, they could help. <laughs> they didn't think you were unsalvageable. No, 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 they could help. <laughs> it would take some time, but then, you know, it's... it's and, and some then, money, I exactly. imagine, yeah. And then we walked all the way out to the oceans. 30 miles, we could have done it in one day, but we did it in three or four days, sleeping, you know, on different motels. And just a, just a great, great experience. That sounds like a really good experience and especially somewhere like LA where people don't see the minutiae of life. You know, they don't see it because they're whizzing past in their air-conditioned cars. And if they go for a walk, they go hiking in the hills. You know, exactly. it's actually, you're, you're just going out for a walk. And, and so much in LA... <laughs> it's not really all, hiking. So much in LA all about meeting people can, that can help you to be more successful than you are, mostly in the entertainment business. So it's all about moving up. Everything you do is about moving up. And then it's really interesting to, you know, to see it from that angle. I love it that you... It's not just about you know, exploring and conquering and achieving those world firsts of the north, south and the three poles. But it's also about going through long walks through cities and through urban landscapes. That's what I love doing too. Do you have any ambitions to do other journeys and what are they? Yeah, I think we are all bored explorers. And I think wonder is a very engine of life. So I really hope I will just keep on walking for, you know, today I'm 56 and I hope I can keep on going for another 56 years. Wonderful. My last question is always about music, mm -hmm. because music and travel for many people go hand in hand. I don't know much about Norwegian music, but um, I'm sure you have an international taste in music <laughs> as well. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a very memorable place or time of travel, what would that song be? Could be so many songs, but let's say... Ain't no mountain high enough. I love it. <laughs> and have you listened to that at any particular moment of travel or just the fact that you're an explorer, you climb mountains, there isn't any mountain high enough that can keep you from whatever the song says? I have to admit, I mean, it's a pit, but I have to admit, I've probably heard that song several hundred times. Is that a favourite? I just like the song and, you know, I like the different versions. And, yeah, and I think it has a good moral. You know, it, I think it's true that... It, it ain't no mountain high enough. I think it's a big mistake when people start to think that they have reached all the goals, they reached the highest mountains, there's nothing more to re you know, go for. I think that's a big mistake because it's wrong. You know, life is long walk. And if you start to think when you're 20 years, years old or 50 or 70 years old, that this is it. You know, you really have to get your act together.
Thank you so much, Erling, and thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm off to Spain for a couple of weeks, but we'll be releasing episodes as usual from there. At least that's the plan. You can always find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, if you so wish. Just search for Lisa Francesca Nand and the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.